It's uh, good to be here with you. It's so good to, uh, just to just to be the recipient along with you um, of what we've just experienced, right? Uh, I don't know how you walk in here tonight. I don't know if you're walking in in a place of the miraculous in some ways, just where just life is just good, and then that is so good, isn't it? And, and then if you walk in here in the midst of the brutality of life, even though you wrestle, I think, with those words when they're sung, even though they're sung and you're like, I don't even, I mean, I don't even know if I want to hear them, there is something so important to the soul to be here, to be hearing that, to be having that stir us, to, to have that challenge us, to, to have that call us out of the here and now into remembering what is bigger than we are. Um, there's a letter in the scriptures, uh, we know it as First Peter. It's uh, written a little later on, Peter is writing uh, to a group of, of believers, uh, churches, that have been dispersed because of persecution. Uh, mostly he's writing to churches in the region of Galatia, and uh, Bithynia and sort of the, the eastern uh, landmass next to the Aegean Sea uh, where the church is primarily Gentile. There is some Jewish influence there, but uh, this, is, this is primarily a Gentile church. And what has happened is since the gospel has gone out um, after Paul's second missionary journey through Galatia and uh, as he traveled across north of Ephesus through Bithynia and then across the Aegean Sea, and the church uh, came alive there uh, as Rome began to rise up against this new movement. Uh, the church started being dispersed by persecution, uh, both internally in the cities and towns in which they were, as well as externally through Rome and, and the great persecution that begun. And Peter, as one of the leading voices in the early New Testament church, is writing to those churches uh, to encourage them in the midst of a time of significant persecution. In many ways, uh, we would argue that though we know now in hindsight that the gospel went out uh, and, and overcame geographical and, and, and generational uh, boundaries and it landed uh, 2,000 years later here with us, they couldn't have known this. They didn't know this. And so in many ways, in the immediate in the here and now, for the churches that Peter is writing to, there had to be a question of whether they make it or not, whether it works out or not, whether this wasn't the biggest mistake of their lives, following the way, following Jesus. And when Peter writes this letter, in his introduction to the letter, uh, the first uh, two verses that he writes is just really a greeting, is, is all it is. Uh, just Peter greeting those churches so that we have context. Uh, verses one and two. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, and, you know, Asia, Bithynia, those areas, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So there Peter starts. And he starts this greeting to these churches who are under great persecution and are currently experiencing the brutality of life, the brutality of following Jesus, the brutality that comes with this planet and everything else. 
And then Peter writes these words. Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, so right out of this introduction where, Paul, where Peter greets the churches and says, I'm writing to you guys who are in exile in the dispersion as a result of the persecution and the reality of the life you're living in the midst of what seems to be very possibly the dem- demise of the movement of the gospel rather than the great uh, overcoming of the movement to you who are persecuted, to you who are weary, to you who are not sure whether you even did the right thing. Uh, let me tell you, let me tell you, right away, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, who in his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through his son Jesus who came and rose from the dead. That's where he begins. It's a great place to start, isn't it? Because it's where he says, I know things are hard. I know you must be wrestling with so much. So let us take a a moment and be reminded of what this big story is all about. That despite the immediate circumstances, even though they may seem overwhelming, the God of mercy has caused you to be born again into a living hope. And I love Peter's language here because you will notice he puts nothing on us. Did you notice that? He didn't say, well, just how grateful are we that we, that we came to realize who Jesus was and decided to follow him. He didn't say, oh my gosh, aren't you glad that God showed himself to you and that you made the right choice? To, and he goes, no, 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 no. The blessing I'm giving God is because he is a God of mercy and his mercy is this, that he caused you to be born again into a living hope. God gifted you and I with this reality that he made us born again into a living hope. Now he goes on, look look at this. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So what he's telling the, the churches he's writing to under persecution, in the midst of the wrestle of whether they make it or not, he says to them, let us begin here, praise God that he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through Jesus, and here is the living hope that there is a future for us, an inheritance that is ours, and this inheritance is unperishable. In other words, folks, it cannot be undone. It does not perish. It does not rot. It does not disappear. It, nothing can stop it from being what it is. It is in its definition something that is everlasting, right? Because by definition, perishable would mean it can't last forever. But imperishable means it cannot ever not last. It is going to last forever. It is imperishable. Then, it is undefiled, which means that it is immune 
to being defiled. It cannot be influenced, it cannot be affected, it cannot be infected by sin, death, darkness, or anything unholy. It is, in its definition, will always be, is only holy. The inheritance that is for these people, the elect, uh, that God has chosen in this space, born again into a living hope, and us included in this that know Jesus, here it is, it is everlasting, it will always be perfect, always holy. It is undefiled, and it is unfading. It does not diminish, it does not fade, it does not get smaller or weaker or less. It is always enough. Do you realize that the inheritance to which we have been caused to be born into is the exact opposite of every human experience we have? There is nothing you and I have ever experienced on this earth that are those things. Everything we experience is the opposite of that. Everything you can actually tangibly experience is perishable. Everything. You don't know what imperishable is, nor do I, because we have no context for that. There is nothing you have ever tangibly experienced that is not perishable. Your bodies are perishable. The sand you walk on is perishable. This earth is perishable. The universe is perishable. Everything you eat, drink, touch, buy is perishable. We only know perishable. We only know defiled. You know that? It says that sin has infected all of creation. So everything we know tangibly, everything that is created is defiled. And it is only because of the redemptive work of Jesus and the redemptive story of God and his, his, his coming into that dark place that we even know that there is hope that someday we will not be defiled, right? Our righteousness isn't even our own, it is Jesus himself. So everything you know, everything I know is defiled. And everything you know, everything I know is fading. You have nothing in your life that is not fading. Everything gets smaller. Everything diminishes. And our inheritance is the exact opposite of everything we know. We don't even know what it is. We just know it's that cool. We only know that it is going to be everything we do not know. Everything that is, that is hopeless for us is hopeful in our inheritance, and then look what he says. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Don't you love that? It's almost as though God is saying this. The inheritance itself cannot be undone. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and nobody can take the inheritance itself and make it go away. So you could theoretically say, well, the inheritance can't be undone, but someone could take it from you. And God goes, no, 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 they'd have to take it from me. And that's gonna be a problem because I am the creator and sustainer of all things. Anything that wants to take it from me will just cease to exist because I make them exist. So it works out well. See what God's saying? You are not trying to keep your inheritance intact. You are not hoping to do whatever you need to do so that your inheritance will continue to be yours. He keeps it for you. 
He keeps it for you. Now, this is the best part right here. Watch this. Kept in heaven for you and I, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here's what he's saying. You have an inheritance that's amazing, opposite to everything you know, that I am keeping for you in heaven, and I am guarding you by the faith I've given you so that salvation will be the result of your story so that you will have your inheritance. So the inheritance can't disappear. No one can take the inheritance, and you and I can't undo the inheritance by failing at our faith because he is guarding us through our faith and he is guarding our faith because our faith, according to Hebrews, isn't our faith, for it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Wow. And then he says this. And then he says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through the testing, uh, through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So here's what he just said. This is what you and I can rejoice in, in the here and now. So he's been talking about the, this right here what's waiting for us, what we have not yet seen, what we do not yet know, but that we, have, that we have been told is coming. And then he says, now, here's how you rejoice in the here and now. That though in the here and now, you and I will face a significant set of difficulties, some of which will literally, the word here, grieve us, right? So he's not talking about like, oh, did it go bad today? No, he's saying no, these things that absolutely rip your soul out, that grieve you, that, are, that have a longevity to them, that, that cause you to begin to feel like you are losing, right? He says, listen, what, what the, the planet, what sin and death, what the enemy intended for your destruction, rejoice in this, I will take those things and they will be used <laughs> to demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. This has nothing to do with us. This is why he starts, praise to the God of mercy. It's not saying when these things come, then you will have faith. It says they will demonstrate your faith to be genuine by testing your faith. And we think of the word testing as like a test. It's thrown at you, you pass or fail. But in this context, because he uses it right after, he says like gold is tested and still perishes. It is actually the word refining is better. To test gold simply means to take gold and to burn it so that it can realize its full potential, right? It is to refine it so that what comes out on the other side is the best version of the gold you had. It removes everything that makes it less than what it should be. And so he says this, on this planet, when things get really hard and you feel like you are losing the battle, not winning, I will use that to make your faith what it needs to be because I am guarding your faith so that your faith will produce its end, which is your salvation, 
so that you will have your inheritance that I caused you to be born into. Do you see what he just did? I will make sure your faith sustains so that it will produce salvation so that you will have your inheritance that I will keep for you that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and I was the one that caused you to be born into it. What Peter's trying to tell the church is that no matter what, our living hope is an extraordinary thing to rest in. I don't know how you walk into here tonight. Some of you I do, some of you I know well enough to know how you walk in here tonight, and some of you I don't. I can't possibly know, among all the gatherings we do, how people walk into this place. Some of you walk in, in a season of, of the miraculous. The last few months, years, days maybe, your prayers have been answered. Things are going well. You've come through a rough valley, but you're on a mountaintop now. Or you're on a mountaintop and haven't gone in a rough valley yet. You look at your life and you wonder how it gets this good. You feel intimate with God. It seems every time you open the Bible, God speaks. You are utterly convinced of his presence because life has made it easy in this particular season. Praise God for that. I'm so glad that that's how you walk in here. Those are good times and we need them desperately. Some of you walk in here. You, you love Jesus, but you're not sure he exists. You know he's good, but your soul tells you he's not. You're trying to tell yourself he is, but you're even not sure to, that you can believe yourself. Life is so heavy that you are utterly convinced that you don't make it. I mean, you make it, but you don't make it. Doubts haunt you, cynicism overruns you, or just circumstance overwhelms you. You come in here like that. You know Jesus wins, but at this point you're pretty convinced it's after you die because this feels terrible. See, I, I don't know how you come in here today, but I can promise you that both of those people are in this room among you meaning all of you fall into one of those two categories or something in between. And if you're not in the brutality of life right now, don't worry, you will be. And if you're not in the beauty of life right now, don't worry, you will be. See, that's the point of our journey on this planet. It has beauty in it, moments of beauty, and it has brutality in it. Sometimes, by choice of your own, you take on mission or you take on circumstance and it doesn't go well. And sometimes, by no choice of your own, it comes at you. You didn't ask for it. Sometimes beauty just comes at you and sometimes brutality just comes at you. But here's what I do know. That however you've walked in here today, it seems in the scripture, like in this passage with Peter, that what the authors of scripture do over and over again is that whenever they are speaking into brutal moments, they seem to start always with something like this. Can we just pause for a second and can we just be reminded of what is not immediate and felt, but what is transcendent and real? Can we just talk for a second about the living hope in which we live? Because you see, 
we are designed as a community to come into this space together and to bring into this space our brutality and our beauty so that at times those of us living in beauty can tell those stories and those stories can remind those of us living in brutality that there are spaces in life where things become okay again. We need you here when things are going well for you. We need your stories when God is full in you. And we need you in here when it's brutal and you're not sure God exists. We need each other because we're all gonna go through different stages. And so God designed biblical community to function this way. When, when it's heavy and it's going to be, you, you need this. That's why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10 and he says this, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but gather together regularly so that you might be stirred up and spurred on by one another toward love and good deeds, right? Not just an, act, an action of producing love and good deeds, but that we would actually be pushed back into the spaces of love and then functionally play out into good deeds. Tonight, we celebrate baptisms. I mean, this whole weekend, we've just been doing baptisms, lots and lots of baptisms. And it has been so good because baptisms are one of those gifts given to us as a biblical community that Jesus gave to us so that we can preach the gospel to one another through our stories and remind each other of the goodness of God even though sometimes we sit in this place and feel no goodness from God. And folks, when it's brutal, let's just be honest, that's hard. We, we're great at pretending, aren't we? Oh, I guess God is so good. And we say it, and, and we kind of mean it, but not really, because internally we're, we're, so, we're, we're, we're so undone. And then we come together, we gather, and somebody gets up and they say, I just recently in, encountered the gospel, and it, it has undone me, and I'm overwhelmed by the mercies of God that he would cause me to be born into a living hope so that I might have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and that my faith will be guarded by him and my inheritance by him kept for me so that no matter what, it cannot be undone. And then we sit here and we go, yes. I may not feel God's goodness in me today, but God is still good because he works and sometimes it is my story that makes that beautiful, and sometimes it is yours. And sometimes I need your story to be beautiful because I don't have one. And sometimes you need mine to be because you don't have one. And that's called biblical community. So as we celebrate baptisms together in this gathering, I challenge you, I, I beg of you, don't just sit through them and go, Oh, that's so sweet. That was a neat story and another person baptized. Ask God. Ask God to use these baptisms tonight for what they were intended to be used for. Not only for the person being baptized to step out in obedience and publicly declare to you the encounter they have had with Jesus and the gospel that they have discovered and how it is undoing them, but also for us that we might hear again that God is good and he is at work even though he may not be tangibly felt 
in our current brutality in which we sit. The baptisms are for you. They are for me. They are for those being baptized. And they are a great reminder of a paragraph like this in 1 Peter. Are things tough? Are things rough? Have you been dispersed? Is persecution heavy? Do you feel like the gospel may be losing, not winning in your story, in your home, in your family, in your marriage, with your parenting? Is it, is it overwhelming? Then watch a baptism and hear these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our reality, whether we feel it or not. Let's pray. God, I pray for all of us, for those of us that are here with souls soaring and a season of life where the valleys of the shadows of death are behind us and we are climbing into the heights, into the high places where we sense and feel your presence more than we ever have. And for those of us that have found ourselves knee deep, neck deep in the valley of the shadow of death. Your absence is tangible and the circumstances are screaming at us that we do not win. God, may both of us in both of those spaces find ourselves having our eyes turned because we are in community together back to the wonder of your mercy and your promise that in the end when it's all said and done, you will finish every work that you began and you will make everything new and we will be the recipients of an inheritance that we can't even imagine now. May we find hope in our hopelessness and may we celebrate our great joys in light of the greater one yet to come. May baptisms tonight stir our souls and be the reminder of your great redemptive work among us so that we would believe again that it will one day happen in us in the journey we have on this planet. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.